Hello and welcome to Unbreak Your Health, the podcast program about the world of hope and health known as complementary and alternative medicine. I'm Alan Smith in Plano, Texas, author of Unbreak Your Health, and today our topic is the best-selling book, The China Study, and our guest is co-author T. Colin Campbell. Along with his youngest son, Tom, Dr. Campbell has written a very important book about diet and health. Dr. Campbell has been at the forefront of nutrition research for more than 40 years and is currently Jacob Gould Sherman Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University. He has received more than 70 grant years of peer-reviewed research funding and authored more than 300 research papers. The China study was the culmination of a 20-year partnership between Cornell University, Oxford University, and the Chinese Academy of Preventive Medicine. You've come quite a long way from the family dairy farm in Virginia to the China study, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I mean, what I know today, based on the evidence that we acquired over the last 50 years, is almost diametrically opposed to what I started out with when I came from the farm. America spends more on health care than any other nation on earth, but we're not very healthy, are we? That's right. Uh, This is something not generally known by the American public, but it is a sad fact. We do spend the most per capita of any country in the, in the world. And unfortunately, we get ranked somewhere between 35th and 40th, depending on you know, the factors uh, compared to other countries. So it's, it's not a good picture. Dr. Kimball, what is the China study? Well, it's a little confusing, I have to confess. That's the name of the book, the China study. And in the book, I basically refer to or discuss my work in research for the last, uh, at that time, for the last 40 plus years. And one of the projects that we did was uh, a study in China. We called it the China Project at the time, and it was a nationwide program of determining why cancer was so common in some areas, not in others. So there, it was a serious study, but the book itself reviews not only that study, but also much of the research that I had been involved in prior to that. and also included my experiences for about 20 years working on national policy development, being on expert panels and things like that. When you started your research, did you expect to find that the American diet was going to be superior to the average China diet? No, I I actually don't like particularly to refer to a China diet. what, What we did was to go to China in the rural areas of the country and just measured as many things as we possibly could. And there were about two dozen laboratories around the world involved in that effort. But we wanted to measure lots of things to see why it was, as I said before, these serious diseases were much more common in some areas and much less common in others. So that was the study. And when we finally concluded that study, and together with the information that we had been obtaining in our laboratory in the years prior to that, I had to come to the conclusion that consuming a whole food, plant-based diet without you know, adding back a lot of salt, sugar, and fat, that that kind of diet really had some remarkable properties in creating health. And, of course, that was substantially different from what I grew up on the farm with and what, in fact, I taught my students at the beginning of my career. So the diet we're talking about now is low-fat, low-protein, high-carbohydrate type of diet In opposition, the kind of diet we tend to consume in this country is high fat, not low fat. It's also relatively high in protein, especially high in protein coming from animal-based foods and relatively low in carbohydrate. So this new diet can do remarkable things. It's not just me and my group, but my colleagues as well. Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn of the Cleveland Clinic, for example, a very famed surgeon, 
was able to show that he could actually cure heart disease in people who were at the advanced stages of heart disease. Others, like Dr. John McDougall in the West Coast and Dr. Neil Bernard in Washington and still others, have found that you could take type 2 diabetics and basically eradicate the disease within days almost. It, it's, it's really truly remarkable using the same strategy. And then there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Roy Swank, now passed away, who for many years studied multiple sclerosis, a very serious disease, and found that essentially the same kind of dietary approach could stop the progression, as he said, of 95% of multiple sclerosis diseases or patients. So all in all, and much more than what I just said, the evidence is so so provocative, I guess you could say, but nonetheless so impressive that we are now at a point, in my mind, of having to redefine what we mean by nutrition. It's a great hidden secret, to be honest about it. And so that's what the book is about, elaborating on my work, the work of some others, my experiences in policy development to cause me to get to this particular point in my life. In your book, you notice that the Chinese actually eat more calories than we do, but they gain less weight than Americans, don't they? Yes. I often ran into so-called heresies during my career, uh, heresies even in respect to what I had been teaching my students, the typical textbook stuff, but you just mentioned one, that it is possible when we're using a whole food plant-based diet not to worry about counting calories. We can forget that. And as a matter of fact, we have evidence that, if anything, one can consume slightly more calories, as we observed in China, and still not gain weight. And that the reason for that is because the calories being consumed to be burned off as body heat or perhaps being, are being used to stimulate physical activity and thus supporting physical conditioning. And so it doesn't get laid down as body fat. We've all learned that protein is essential to our health, but does it make a difference where it comes from? Yes, it does. Protein has probably been the most revered of all nutrients ever since its discovery in 1839. And for the most, much of that early history and still today for a lot of people, people tend to think that protein only comes from animal-based foods. Meat and protein are almost synonymous in the minds of many, but when in reality that's not the case. Protein can be found in plant-based foods as well. And as a matter of fact, when we're consuming a whole food plant-based diet, we have plenty of protein. We don't need to supplement with the protein from animal-based foods. In fact, when we take that course, we not only then are consuming excess protein, but also we're distorting the consumption of various and sundry other kinds of nutrients in doing so and, and ending up with the problems. So the protein story has been vastly overrated. It's basically a myth. It's obviously important. It's essential. But the amount of protein that is consumed in a variety of whole plant-based foods is, in fact, sufficient. It's optimal. What kind of health problems does excess protein cause? Well, Nar, this is how I really got into the to this story uh, for the most part because when I was in graduate school at Cornell University, I was involved in a study involving trying to figure out how we could grow more high-quality protein, meaning basically animal-based protein. And so that was where I cut my teeth, got my research program started. But then as time went along, we discovered that was inappropriate and that the protein coming from animal-based foods is, is fine. And during that long years of research, we ran across something that I found really startling. 
namely when we use the protein from cow's milk, majority of the protein cow's milk is called casein. When we use casein in these thermal animals to affect the development of cancer in these animals, we found that when we increased the consumption of casein above the amount normally required in terms of total protein, when we, when we did that, we turned on cancer. And when we withdrew it or replaced it with plant-based protein, we reversed the cancer. In other words, we got to this very important observation that we could turn on and turn off experimental cancer development simply by feeding protein in excess the amount needed. And the protein we were using to turn on cancer was casein, cow's milk protein. When we used soy protein and wheat protein, it did not do it. And so that was a trigger for me in asking much larger questions. You know, what else is going on here? What else does protein do when it's consumed in excess? And at that particular point, I began to discover that, in fact, evidence had been produced in the prior scientific literature, uh, but then ignored. And so now the whole story involving protein is such that when we consume protein in excess of the amount needed, and that, as I said, is the amount of protein needed is what we get from whole plant-based foods, when we are adding animal-based proteins like milk and meat and eggs, we're creating problems for ourselves. It's associated with an increased risk of cancer, increased heart disease incidence and mortality, and a whole host of other kinds of serious health problems. So we've got to sort of reverse course here and go back and ask ourselves, you know, what is protein? How much is needed? What does it do when we consume it in excess? Most of us do consume it in excess. And so much of my story, as I say at the core, really did involve research on protein. If you're enjoying this free podcast, then you're going to love my book. The second edition of How to Unbreak Your Health is your map to the world of complementary and alternative therapies, featuring 339 new and updated listings in 150 different categories. Paperback, hardcover, and ebook editions are available on Amazon.com or from your local bookstore. So, in other words, many of America's health problems really come down to three things. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. What we put on our fork not only has a major effect on our health, but also has many other ramifications, too. I mean, for example, our health care costs in this country are the highest in the world, as we mentioned before. It's largely related to the fact that we're simply not eating the right food. It's been known for more than, well, since the ancient Greek times, that we are what we eat, and we are eating the wrong thing, and it's causing us enormous problems. And this whole story has not been told appropriately, has not been told, in part because our chief health institutions, like the medical establishment, medical schools don't teach nutrition, so doctors have no training in nutrition. In my community of biomedical research, for example, with the National Institutes of Health, who funded most of my research, in fact, virtually all of it, the National Institutes of Health, that's NIH, that's probably the single most influential medical research agency in the world, they have 27 institutes and programs and centers. There's not one called the Institute of Nutrition. So in reality, since the medical practitioners are not telling the public about nutrition, since my community and the biomedical research community are not studying nutrition appropriately, the poor public 
are left up to the whims and claims of corporate America as to who are more interested in selling their products than they are interested in the health of the nation. So nutrition is missing from the equation. Just that simple. And in large measure, during years past, it's been partly intentional. It's partly because of just a really sad ignorance of what this can do. And I would argue that nutrition as a science ought to be the premier biomedical science, certainly for the future. If we don't understand that and come to grips with that idea, we're going to continue to have the serious problems we do now. I think one of the textbook cases uh, illustrating your point is one of the best-known cheeseburger eaters in America, and that being former President Clinton. And he's actually credited the China study for his weight loss and improved health, hasn't he? Yes, he did. He got our book two or three years ago and eventually uh, tried it in preparation for his daughter's wedding this past summer and then found that he got some remarkable achievements, benefits, and finally went on CNN and told Wolf Blitzer his story. He said, yes, it was our book and also my friend, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, and as well Dr. Ornish, who are working in the area of cardiology, that, uh, and that was his particular problem, that collectively this information really did have a major influence on him. And he very clearly stated that he did not eat dairy and meat and went on to a whole plant-based food diet. Most of the things he said I support. A couple of things he said are not quite in order, but he talked about taking a protein supplement. That's not necessary. But President Clinton has a great reputation, as we all know. He's very well known. And for him to have seen for himself what it does and then to have gone on public, on the public air and tell the story is pretty remarkable. One of the common misperceptions about health and nutrition, something that we all seem to have been taught in school, is that cow's milk is what you want to drink to improve your bone density. But that's not really the case, is it? The opposite is true. The higher the consumption of dairy, the greater the risk of osteoporosis, for example. It has the opposite effect on bones. And we now have empirical data, as we say, published scientific data in peer-reviewed journals, to show that the higher the consumption of animal protein, for example, which, of course, is provided by cow's milk, and the higher the consumption of calcium, which, again, is primarily provided by cow's milk, the greater is the risk of so-called bone fracture rates and incidence rates, which translates into osteoporosis. So the higher the dairy consumption, the higher the rates of osteoporosis. Dr. Campbell, it's wonderful that I'm being able to talk to you today since March is National Nutrition Month, according to the American Dietetic Association, but... Americans aren't getting the right information about nutrition and health, as you mentioned earlier. For example, what about the science behind our current food pyramid right now? Well, you just mentioned the American Dietetic Association, and I know I'm on air, and I intend to say exactly what I'm saying. The American Dietetic Association is is hugely supported by the food and drug industries. It's, It's very sad, because that organization largely has control of the curriculum that is used to teach registered dietitians in universities across the country. That organization plays a major role in the licensing of public nutritionists. And so they are an overwhelming and powerful influence on who becomes nutritionists and what they can say about nutrition. And unfortunately, as they say, they are, in my mind, largely a front for the industry. 
it's, it is very sad. As far as the food pyramid is concerned, that is done by a committee at the United States Department of Agriculture who have more interest, in my view, in supporting the livestock-based agricultural industry in this country than they do in, in human health. And that's been documented in various ways. I've been on committees like that. I know how they work. They do, in fact, produce information that ignores what I'm talking about and instead promote information that supports the industry, especially the industries that are subsidized by the American taxpayer. And that's that's a very sad commentary, but it is true. Our taxes are being used to funnel through, essentially, the United States Department of Agriculture to support the production of foods we ought not to be eating. And so along with that, the USDA, through the Food Pyramid Committee, developed reports, so-called official reports, that supports the consumption of the foods, as I said, that we ought not to be eating. They do give some sort of throwing a few crumbs, you know, uh, in our way from time to time. But that's about what it is, that they're not serious about encouraging the kind of dietary change that we need to have. I've read that there's been some controversy about soy protein. Isn't this an example of why we should consume the whole plant and not just bits and pieces? Yes. I mean, soy. there has been an issue, quite a controversy, as a matter of fact, about soy protein over the years. And that goes back, in my experience, to in the 1970s when I was working in the Philippines. We were organizing a national nutrition program for feeding mothers' children. And at that time, there was an interest in the Philippines to produce soybeans for export to this country because of the alleged health value of soy protein. And that was met with considerable consternation and criticism from the dairy industry in this country. So it was the dairy industry suddenly competing with the soy industry. Later, when soy burgers came along, and the proposal to put them in school lunch programs, again, the controversy erupted. It was always the dairy industry-backed information that was thwarting the, the efforts of the soy industry to get their product out there. Well, in due course, the soy industry grew and eventually became you know, a good standing in its own right. And so now it's quite a strong industry. And so what I see from time to time is just claims being made by both sides against the other side, in a sense, sometimes rather subtly. And unfortunately, much of the information that the public gets is sort of tossing the tennis ball back and forth across the net, each industry going after the other one, in a sense. To clarify some of this, it turns out that whole soybeans, just like whole legumes of other kinds, peas and beans, are, in fact, a very good source of protein as well as other nutrients. It's a good food. And soybeans is no exception, as it certainly is. However, soy has been extracted in various ways, processed, and so we now have a lot of soy products appearing every place. And we have some evidence to suggest that we can overconsume these kinds of soy products. And so my own personal interpretation of this information is that if we stay close to the whole food, we can use some of the soy products, of course, they're good products in many cases, but we have to use a little caution in not overdoing them. It is a processed food and can, in fact, present some problems that uh, 
are suggested by the scientific evidence. Dr. Campbell, what are you trying to tell readers with your book, The China Study? Well, number one, I don't like to proselytize. I may sound otherwise, but I really don't like it. I simply am interpreting the evidence that we acquired in our research program over the years. And I'd like to point out, too, that our research program was paid for by the American taxpayer through NIH. So I feel some responsibility to tell the American taxpayer what we did with her money. And we did it as honestly as we could. I'm not selling products. Don't get into that business. I am simply just feeling a responsibility to tell the American public what we learned. Now, to go back to the individual, as I say, I don't like to process life. I, you know, everybody has a free choice to do what they wish, and I'm opposed to efforts made to, you know, sort of channel people's decisions into certain directions. So I, I feel very strongly that people obviously need to have their own personal choices. If they choose to eat the wrong kind of food, in my view, well, that's their business, not mine. And so all I wanted to do with the information that we acquired over the years is to simply share my interpretation of that information with the American public because it has not been told in this way very well in the past, hardly at all. And I think the American public deserves better than what they're getting. It's that simple. Dr. Campbell, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to talk with me about your wonderful book, The China Study. I really enjoyed reading it. Anyone wanting to learn more should visit the website www.tcolincampbell.org. You've been listening to the podcast edition of Unbreak Your Health, discovering the world of hope and health known as complementary and alternative medicine. I'll be back soon with another edition, but to learn more about our guest today, please visit the podcast page at www.unbreakyourhealth.com. We'd love to hear from you about this program. Please send your questions and comments to info at unbreakyourhealth.com. This program is a joint production of Unbreak Your Health and Loving Healing Press. Thank you for listening. I'm Alan Smith, and I look forward to being with you again soon.